1 Samuel chapter 18. We're continuing in the series that we're calling Walking with Kings, focusing on choices, character, how people change, why? Because we believe that in the season of the church, God not only cares about these cities that we're praying about, he also cares about our souls. He cares about our own growth. So today we come to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and the title of today's sermon is The Question of Jealousy. This is a huge topic. It's a very theological topic, and it is a very and deeply personal topic. And I want to give a lot of time and attention to it. It's important. 1 Samuel chapter 18, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. I'll read the text. I'll pray for us together once more, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And it happened, as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Uh oh. Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousand, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it came about. On the next day, that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved within the midst of the house, while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you care about every person gathered here today. Every person matters to you. Our character matters to you. You rejoice and delight in shaping us and molding us more and more to the men and women that you want us to be. You love this. It is for your glory and our good. And so we ask today, God, that we would not hinder the work that you want to do in us. And so with openness and honesty, we say, God, convict us. If there be any sin, any envy, covetousness, jealousy within us, would you reveal it, God? Would you reveal it so that we might experience healing, so that we might give you glory, so that we might experience your love anew and afresh, for it is out of your love that you convict us. Shape us not only as individuals, but even as a church community across the coastlands, Lord. May we not resist the work of your spirit, but would you give us ears to hear what he might say to us. And I pray, Spirit, that you'd anoint my words, that we might ultimately hear your word. We ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, in her 20s, Oprah Winfrey heard something that sent her away. She heard something in church that sent her away from biblical Christianity. 
in an interview several years back, she tells a story of how she grew up in a Baptist church with a well-loved, very charismatic preacher. And one Sunday, the minister began talking about how great God is, how God was omniscient, God was omnipresent, God was omnipotent. And she was caught up in the rapture of the moment until the preacher said, God is jealous. And once she heard that, she was unsettled. And she said in the interview, she said, I heard that and said, God is jealous? Jealous of me? That didn't settle right. I believe that God is love, she said. And this, according to her, sent her away from biblical Christianity. But could it be that she forgot? Could it be that she did not understand that there is a good kind of jealousy and there is a bad kind of jealousy? See, you hear the phrase, God is a jealous God, and you might be somewhat shocked or surprised yourself. But listen, friends, this is so important. I want to give some time and attention to this. Jealousy can be good and jealousy can be bad. Let's talk about both. Most of us are familiar with jealousy being bad. And after all, jealousy can be a troublesome emotion. In fact, if you look jealousy up in the dictionary, you will find that most definitions are somewhat negative. After all, look at all the problems that jealousy can cause. See, the story before us in 1 Samuel 18 is about a king that slowly disintegrates with envy, anger, and jealousy over time. But let's be honest, this doesn't only happen with kings. It can even happen with us. Everybody remembers their high school days, discovering that thing that they're really passionate about, and so usually they end up being jealous of when they see it in other people. For me, it was about playing the electric guitar. Now, I loved music growing up, and you know, in my kind of early teen years, I began to play guitar, and I might admit by 15, I was pretty good. I had a band. And we practiced all the time, strategically leaving the garage door open while we practiced so that anyone from high school getting out of school could just walk by and see the magnificence of our music. And I had a few friends that say, wow, Tim, you're really good. I'd say, oh, don't. Stop. Don't stop. (laughs) Just taking it all in until one day. When one of my friends said, wow, Tim, you're really good, but have you heard Joe play? Who's Joe? What kind of a name is Joe? Anyway, his name really was Joe. My friend said, oh, well, Joe can play all the parts that you do, but better, better, better. It just echoed in my mind. And I thought, no, this can't be. And so I went over to Joe's garage, and sure enough, there was Joe, playing so fast that my eyes couldn't even follow, and I realized he was better than me. There's this old quote from a famous American author, Gore Vidal, who once said, whenever a friend succeeds, a little something in me dies. And I just picture Gore Vidal there on that day, just giving me the nod, (laughs) because that day, a little something in me died. I was experiencing jealousy, but of course, this isn't just just for for teenagers. This is for all of us, whether you're, you're 20 or you're 80, and jealousy can get serious. The wrong kind of jealousy can get very serious. It can lead you to lying at your work, lying to cover up somebody else's success, minimize theirs in order to maximize yours because you're jealous. This wrong kind of jealousy can lead to abuse in relationships, and it can even be lifelong. Jealousy can be a destructive vice with an evil agenda. However, however, jealousy can also be good. Jealousy can be a virtue with a noble purpose. How? What in the world? Many of us, we don't stop to think about it in this way, but it's true. But stop for a moment and reflect. What is jealousy? Jealousy is a passionate desire to protect what a rival might take. Let me repeat that. 
Jealousy is a passionate desire to protect what a rival threatens to take. And there can be legitimate moments for this kind of jealousy. One example would be within a marriage. Let's say that there's a husband and, and their wife is being flirted with by another man, a man who is not her husband, who's complimenting her in perhaps inappropriate ways. In that occasion, it would be good and right for the husband to be jealous. Why? Because that woman, his wife, actually belongs to him. They belong to one another in marriage. The wife-husband relationship is an exclusive relationship. It is for and belonging in their marriage. In fact, if the husband in that case were not jealous, it would show a lack of passion and depth. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says. Listen to how he uses the word jealousy in a good way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul speaking to the church at Corinth says, For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. See church, our relationship to God is exclusive. The way that we relate to God is absolutely unique for there is no other God. God's jealous love reveals the passionate desire of his heart for us, for our good and for his glory. Divine jealousy is God's love, is God's holiness acting for his glory and our good. So here's an important distinction. There's a difference in being jealous of and jealous for something. See, the, the, the husband whose wife is you know, being flirted with by another man, in this case, the husband is not jealous of his wife. Like, oh, you get all the compliments. I don't get any compliment. No, that's not what's happening. In that scenario, well, it might be happening with some of you, but in that case, you need to repent. But the good kind is not a jealousy of your spouse, but a jealousy for your spouse. When Paul uses the word jealousy, he's not jealous of the church. He is jealous for the church that they might be faithful to God. I wonder if Oprah's pastor that day explained this. To put it simply, God is not jealous of us. God is jealous for us. Let's just make that distinction crystal clear. God is not looking down on your lives to say, uh, today saying, oh my gosh, so jealous. Like, look at you. You get to live in Carpinteria or Ventura or Santa Barbara. Look at you got a new car. So jealous. Like, God is not saying that about your life today. God is not insecure in heaven, you know, scared that you might find a better God. It's like, oh, there's all these other idols out there. Like, do I measure up? Like, angels, what do you think? God is not insecure, scared in heaven that you might find a better God, only heartbroken that we would settle for a false God because he's jealous for us. God's jealous love is right for at least two reasons. Number one, it is for our good. And number two, we actually belong to him. That is why God's jealous love is right. It is for our good and we belong to him. In other words, God is not jealous in spite of his love, but because of his love. God's jealousy has no sin attached to it at all whatsoever. But unfortunately, our jealousy often does. And there we begin to see the contrast between the two. Evil jealousy produces harm. God's jealousy protects from harm. God's jealous love is not destructive, but protective, watching over the right thing for the right reasons in all the right ways. Author Jerry Bridges, in a book called Respectable Sins, he explains this further. He says, there are legitimate occasions for jealousy, such as when someone is trying to win your spouse away from you. God even declares himself to be a jealous God who will not tolerate the worship of anyone or anything other than himself. Sinful jealousy occurs, however, when we are afraid someone is going to become equal to or superior to us. Jealousy is a strong emotion connected to protection and security. It can be good, but it can also be bad. 
So in the story of Saul and David, we see how jealousy can actually go wrong and what we do when sinfully jealous people are out to get us. See, in Saul, we see ungodly jealousy. Ungodly jealousy is protective of the wrong thing for the wrong reasons in all the wrong ways. And this is where it all goes south for Saul. Though His position as king, we've learned so far, did not rightfully belong to him. He worshipped it. He worshipped his position. He was jealous for a throne that was only God's to give. See, so far in the story over the last few weeks, we've learned that Israel had their first king. His name was Saul, but God rejected him as king. Why? Because Saul rejected God as his king. And as a result, God sent the prophet Samuel into the land to find a new king, a king that would actually obey God. And the prophet Samuel goes out and he finds the family of Jesse. And in the family of Jesse, there's a young man named David. And God told the prophet Samuel that day that David would be the true and anointed king of Israel. But here's the catch. It would be years before that would become public. In the meantime, Saul is still physically on the throne. And yet he's raging with jealousy. And this becomes obvious during a time of great victory for Israel. And I'd like to point out in this story that our character is often revealed in the furnace of success. It's the occasion for ungodly jealousy and all kinds of other wrong, you know, kind of um, feelings and attitudes. It surfaces. See, think about it for a moment. A furnace reveals things. When silver or gold is being heated up in the furnace, it brings up the dross. It reveals what lies within. For that reason, many of us are familiar with the furnace of suffering. We don't like to talk about it, but it's true. When we go through suffering, suffering has a revealing effect. When you face difficult times, it can be really hard and it shows you what you're truly trusting in. We're familiar with the furnace of suffering. But are you also familiar with the furnace of success? Somebody in your group of friends, somebody amongst your peer group has been offered a new amazing role at their job and you're not. Somebody amongst your friends has been, give, has been given this enormous raise, and yet you haven't. Or their business has taken off, or their new project has taken off, but yours has not. Or try this one. Somebody you know has entered into a new and exciting relationship, but you haven't. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about all of that when others are experiencing this incredible success? See, the furnace of success can either produce humility or it can reveal pride. Whether praise is directed towards you or towards another person, how you respond reveals what lies within. Listen to the wisdom of Proverbs. Proverbs 27 verse 21 says, Fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but a person is tested by being praised. See, here in 1 Samuel 18, in the midst of great success for Israel, we see yet again a contrast between Saul and David. So to appreciate what's happening in this story, we must keep in mind what we looked at last week, the enormous impact that Goliath's defeat would have had. See, the Philistines in those days were the greatest threat to the nation of Israel's existence at the time. And for over a month, the Israelites were gripped in fear with the presence of Goliath, this Philistine champion whose challenge to a fight would determine whether or not the Israelites would have become slaves. Then on the scene comes David, a previously unknown teenager. He comes on the scene and single-handedly eliminates the threat. In a day, he becomes like YouTube famous. He, he goes from ordinary to extraordinary in the eyes of the people. And life would never be the same for him again. Nor would it be the same for Saul. David's popularity begins to rise. But before we talk about Saul, I want you to notice another character. One that we're going to talk about a little bit more next week. And his name is Jonathan. In contrast 
to ungodly jealousy, Jonathan shows humility. In the first four verses, do you see what's happening there? This is the beginning of an incredible friendship, which is a glorious thing, and that's going to be the subject for us next Sunday. But I want you to notice here the surprise and significance of what Jonathan does. See, Jonathan was King Saul's son. That means from a human perspective, Jonathan was next in line to become king. And yet what's happening in these first four verses is Jonathan is essentially renouncing his right to the throne. And he transfers that over to David. That's what's being symbolized by Jonathan giving his robe and his bow and his sword to David. Now, this is so counterculture because our world teaches you that when you have a potential rival, you shouldn't help them, you should eliminate them. Isn't that what culture tells us? Like, get rid of them, minimize them. But Jonathan doesn't do that. See, this situation could have been a perfect storm for rivalry. Jonathan could have saw David as a threat. Like, oh, who's this up and coming guy? Well, he better not take my throne because my dad's the king and someday I'm gonna be king. But Jonathan doesn't do that. It could have been a perfect storm. Why? Because we are most tempted to be jealous with someone who is within our sphere of influence. Let me just talk about that for a minute. See, take me for example. I am not particularly athletic. You could probably tell. You're like, we know, Tim. Like, I just don't really do that many athletic things. I don't follow sports too often. I'm like, it's a ball, and they throw it, and there's like numbers. This is great. Where's my hot dog? Like, that's usually how I view athletic experiences. Therefore, if someone comes to me and says, Tim, have you heard about that kid you went to high school with? They're like a famous athlete. I was going to say sports person, but they're called athletes. See how much I don't know? <laughs> they're a famous, well-paid athlete. I'd be like, great. But if you mentioned guitar playing, it's a little, there's, a, there's a wound there in the heart from Joe. <laughs> See, we are, <laughs> we are most tempted to be jealous, not with people who are so outside of our kind of world and what we do. It's most often within our sphere of influence. So I want you to think, well, what season of life are you in? You're going to be tempted to be most jealous of others who are in a very similar season of life, but are doing better. Or your skill, or your craft, or your job. See, that's when you need to be aware of the temptation. For Jonathan, this could have been a temptation, but how does he respond? He doesn't go the way of culture. He goes the way of faith. Because it is only faith in God that makes you willing to be the lesser. But with Saul, not so much. In our story, we see a progression with Saul, which goes from admiration of David to annoyance with David to anger toward David. See, look at what's happening in verses 6 through 11. Everyone's excited. Everybody's riding around town in open top chariots, singing the number one summer single. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands, or whatever. <laughs> However it went with auto-tune and all that, everybody's just singing this song. And maybe even Saul's own, you know, servicemen and women are just there. And they're like, oh, have you heard this song? So I hate that song. Why is everybody singing this song? And it gets to the point where Saul says, well, what's next? The whole kingdom? See, the furnace of success was humbling for David, but for Saul, it revealed something dark within. Something that would not only destroy him, but would actually hurt other people for years to come. It's been said that if jealousy took on a physical shape, it would be a boomerang. Because it always comes back to hurt you. And in part, that's true. But towards everyone else, it can take the shape of a spear. We see in Saul the trouble with spear throwers. Have you ever met a spear thrower? They can be encountered everywhere. You can meet a spear thrower in your family. Someone just out to get you. Or it could even be in the workplace. You can even find spear throwers in the church. Make no mistake, they are there. They can be found everywhere. Spear throwers are men and women who are driven by broken jealousy. Saul 
is a spear thrower. And in him, we see the characteristics of ungodly jealousy. And it is good and wise for us to spend a moment thinking about this so that we can allow the spirit of God to reveal whether or not you and I are being driven by ungodly jealousy. See, you become a spear thrower like Saul when, first of all, you are self-absorbed. See, look at verse 8. Saul thought the kingdom was his rather than God's. He says, what more does this David want? Like, does he want the kingdom? Saul was acting as though the kingdom belonged to him. And so often, this is how our worldview gets shaped in daily life. You think that you have your own little kingdom and you're a king or queen and that it doesn't ultimately belong to God. But notice that it is when things are removed from your life that your true colors begin to show. I've seen this happen countless times in the church over the years. You could have men or women serving in a position, whether it's of of leadership or they're running a a small group or, or a Bible study or whatever it might be. And for years, they're just like doing such a great job and always serving. But for whatever reason, maybe it comes time for them to step down and all of a sudden they say, oh, that's not gonna happen. That's my Bible study. That is my little community group. It doesn't matter whether I'm not healthy before God. My my ministry belongs to me. These people need me. I say to them, come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. I see it happen all the time. People are serving. They're like, hey, I think you should step down for seasons. Not really a lot of health. And you're like, oh, no, that's not going to happen. I don't step down. See, Saul on this day should have said, I have no right to the throne, God. Do what you will. Whatever is for your glory, for my own good, and for the good of others, Lord, do that. But he doesn't. He's only concerned for himself. You could be serving. You could be a a leader. Yet what happens when position is taken away? True colors are revealed. It goes even further. Notice Saul was not bothered that the spirit of God was taken away. He's only scared that his throne would be taken away. Church, that is a terrible place to be when you are just blind and deaf to the work of the Spirit because you're so focused on your own position. See, Saul wasn't bothered. He wanted a throne. And in a sense, he's traded the presence of God's Spirit for the darkness of an evil spirit. It's when we're not self-giving and serving that we become self-absorbed. You just, we know how it is. You look at a photograph and you're like, where's me, right? We just like naturally go to ourselves. You want to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. You're like, where's me in the story? It's all about me and my own little kingdom. And the Bible says, no, it is not. You are included in God's story. Yes, it always includes you, but it's always more than you. And that's not bad news, friends. That is good news. That is good news. But we go wrong when we don't want someone else to have the experience or success or the blessing of God that we have. Self-absorbed. And then we become insecure like Saul. He is fearful of being removed from a position that doesn't belong to him. And therefore, he's jealous of anyone who would take it. Sound familiar? See, he was threatened by David's presence. As you and I might be threatened by the presence of another up-and-coming, promising person who's underneath us, maybe younger than us or less experienced than us, and they're like, hey, I've got a raise in like two weeks. You're like, that is so awesome for you. It's so good. I'm so happy for you. We're going to throw a party. See, there's that ungodly jealousy, this protective passion. But for Saul, it was rooted in a love of his own reputation. And if this exists in you, my dear friends, it will not only plague you, but others. And it will then cause you to be hypervigilant, where you see other people as the problem, not you. See, when Saul was going to bed every night, he wasn't thinking about, oh, how great God is. He's like, oh, that David. I just picture him on his throne with his spear, and he's just twirling it. He's like, oh, David, David. Oh, spear, what can I do with this? We'll get there in a moment. But it makes Saul be hypervigilant. And so you keep a jealous eye on them. Look at verse 9. Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Let's confess that it is easy for the evil in our own heart to color the way that you view other people. Because they 
seem like a threat to you, you just can't possibly envision them as a blessing. You only see them as a competition. You only see them as a threat. See, Saul only ever saw young David as ambitious but not anointed. See, the Sauls of this world, when we become like Sauls, we do not seek good things for the Davids of the world, but you end up keeping good things from them. Ungodly jealousy is this greedy emotion. It wants all the details, even if they hurt, to add fuel to the fire. Like, what are they doing today? How did it go with David today? You know, how many thousands did he destroy today? And ultimately, you end up becoming hypocritical. You think that the rules apply to others and not yourself, as was the case with Saul. Notice in the story, in verse 10 through 11, he tries to unlawfully and without cause pin David to the wall with his spear. There's David just playing his harp. Don't you just love that scene? David's there and he's just like, Saul, and just playing his little harp. And Saul's like, and just throws a spear like, whoa, abusive relationship. What is happening here? He tries to unlawfully pin David to the wall. And yet in verse 12 through 13, what does he do? He demotes David. Well, David, I don't think you should really be captain over all the people of war. I think you should only be a capital uh, or a captain of thousands. Because in verses 12 through 13, the commentators tell us that's, what hap- that's what's happening. Saul is giving David a demotion and perhaps hoping, maybe hoping that David would die in battle. See, spear throwers change the rules whenever they need to protect their own throne. And so we, before we move on, You and I have to ask the question. It would be very easy to read this and just say, no, not me. I don't really struggle with jealousy. And you might even say that right now. You're like, hey, I don't really struggle with jealousy. And guess what? The other people might be jealous of you because you don't struggle with jealousy. And then it creates a cycle. But you need to ask, you need to ask this. In what ways do you throw spears? In what ways have you thrown spears? What does that look like? We do that with harsh words. The harsh words that we just are scheming to say to certain people because we just want to minimize them a little bit. Or maybe it's even bigger than that. Maybe it's with violent acts or aggressive behavior. Or it's a little more passive aggressive for for some of you who like to, to work that way. It's through manipulative decisions. Oh, I'm sorry. You didn't get the invite to the party? That's weird. So strange. What must we do then when we discover there, that there is Saul in us? See, we've got to be honest. There are times when we'll experience this kind of greedy and ungodly jealousy. And when we do, when you find that emotion just rising up in your heart, it is a signal. It's like a check engine light, you know, that comes on, on your dashboard. You ever notice those? I just usually pay no attention to them. My wife's like, honey, the lights are on, all the orange lights. I'm like, ah, we'll drive through it. Because, you know, I used to work on cars like 20 years ago. It's fine, another 5,000 miles. Just keep riding through it. And yet the lights are on and they're saying, hey, something's going on underneath the hood and you need to check it. Friends, when you are experiencing this kind of emotion of ungodly jealousy, it's like a check engine light. It means you need to stop and you need to get before God and say, God, what is going on in my heart? God, what is going on underneath the hood? And when it does, when you discover that that rises in your heart, what do you do? How do we deal with sinful jealousy? First of all, you need to repent of the idols. See, Saul should have asked the question, what am I trying to protect so badly? And Saul's answer would have been his throne that didn't rightfully belong to him. And so when you find this ungodly jealousy trying to overtake you, you need to first of all repent of any idols in your life, something that you're deeming more important than God. We need to repent of that and turn away from that and say, hey, these these things Even if they're good things, they're privileges. They are not my right. And then secondly, you need to receive the gift of God's limits. It may be that in God's sovereignty, he's just allowed certain limits into your life, and that is not a bad thing. In fact, God even speaks to you within your limits. He reminds you that you are not God, that you are human, that one that that he is going to gift and call in a very specific way And it's ways in which he determines himself. We need to receive the gift of God's limits. Right now, some of you are pushing against that. You're like, no, I want to be unlimited like culture tells me to be. And God says, no, I've given you limits. But they're good. They're good. They remind you of who I am. 
And I give you gifts for a very specific reason. But I want you to take even further steps than that. Don't just rejoice in your limits. I want you to actually rejoice in the giftings of other people. When you see other people who have gifts or blessings that may even be greater than yours, even if it's in the same sphere of influence in that moment, respond to those temptations towards ungodly jealousy by rejoicing in their gifts. In fact, it's not on the screen, but I would say go further. Pray that God would bless them even more. How's that one? What would happen in the coastlands if every time you struggled, struggled with covetousness, envy, or jealousy, instead of going there, you responded by praying God's blessings on other people? What would our communities look like if that's the way that we responded? God, I'm tempted to be jealous of this person because all their blessings, but you know what, God? I want you to bless them even more. Give them a double portion, God. Pray blessings on their lives. And fourthly, remember what actually matters most and who matters most. It's God and it's his glory. See, these are the steps that we need to take when we discover within us these these ungodly species of jealousy in our own heart. These are the steps we must take. But now you might ask the question, well, what about when you are the object, when you're the target of a spear thrower. How do you deal with a jealous spear thrower? Well, in David, we discover the art of dealing with spear throwers. So what should we do when this happens? What should we do when, when somebody's overtaken by their own sin and they're just launching spears at us? I just want to give you two practical things, and yet they're so important. Number one, it's okay to dodge their spears. Okay, David does that. David doesn't just become a martyr and just say, here I am, I'll take it. See, listen, we all, turn the other cheek doesn't mean you become a doormat. It doesn't mean, listen, that you make it easy for people to sin against you. See, some people think that that's what it means. Like, oh, I guess I'll just make it easy for everybody to sin against me. I'm gonna put a big target on my head. That's not what's happening. In fact, I would say this. It is actually unloving to make it easy for people to sin against you. It's not even good for them. There's a time and a place to to dodge the the, the spears. There's a time and a place for good boundaries. David dodged the spears. That is good. That is okay. That is right. But secondly, and so importantly, don't you dare throw the spears back. Don't you dare throw them back when they are thrown at you. Have you ever thought how easy it would be for David to just taunt and tease Saul in this season of his life? You know, David's just singing his harp and Saul's, you know, kind of wrestling with jealousy and and David's just like, you know, kind of engaging with Saul in in, in a very mean level. He's like, hey, Saul, have you seen a, have you seen Goliath's head anywhere? I think I chopped it off about a month ago. Oh, giant slayer. Like it would have been so easy for David to do that with Saul. And sometimes we become so petty and we do these things amongst, amongst each other, but it is not right because listen, throwing back spears will not change them. Throwing back spears will not change them, but it will change you. It will change you into a Saul. It will change you into a Saul, but in not throwing them back, you become more like Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love that passage. And notice the clarification given there. He says, if possible, right? Full reconciliation where the other person even reconciles with you may not always be possible and it may not always depend on you. But listen, church, insofar as it depends on you, live peaceably with all and do not repay evil for evil. But give thought, that means give time and attention to what is honorable in the sight of all. Because you may be in a season where you're suffering at the hands of a spear thrower. But it's in that season that you need also to remember the words of the apostle Peter when he talked about this kind of suffering. Peter writes to us and says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And isn't that what happened at the cross of Calvary? It was there that Jesus was wrongly accused and unjustly tried and he was crucified wrongly and it seemed as though in that moment that the darkness had won. And yet we know the gospel tells us that Jesus was victorious. So you and I can know that God is even using those seasons where spear throwers are in our lives. He's even using those seasons to shape us. See, God was teaching David, just as God is teaching you and I. What is he teaching us? You might say, well, these people are like throwing spears at me. What on earth is he teaching? And you're like, I know there's a lesson in here somewhere. Well, let me suggest three. And there are three lessons I'm actually taking from what David himself wrote. See, one of the great things about the book of Psalms, when you compare it to the historical books where the life of David is chronicled, is you often learn what David himself is learning. Because he's writing about it through his poems and and through his songs. He's bringing his heart to God. So what do we know of what David was learning when he was experiencing the evil jealousy of Saul? The first lesson was humility. Humility. David was learning to be open and honest before God. Listen to what he wrote in Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. All of us prayed that this morning, right? (laughs) See, Psalm 7, we're told, was written during this season where he was persecuted by Saul. And it's okay to ask God for deliverance, but notice David is also showing humility. He's saying, God, if if I've done anything wrong, show me. If I've been wrong in this matter, show me. And think about how God would continue to change us and shape us if we responded in that way. Humility is a lesson we must learn. But secondly is patience. And David has to talk about patience all the time. In Psalm 7, verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. David, like we do, had to learn a lot about waiting. But that's what makes us so easily able to relate to David in the Psalms. I mean, think about it. Why are the Psalms so recognized worldwide as such sources of great comfort? How could Davis take, a, take us deeper into our own hearts? How could Davis, David take us deeper into the very heart of God? Because David suffered. Because David knew about waiting. And friends, it may be that this is God's word to you today. Maybe you woke up this morning and you're like, God, I just want a word from you. And you come to church and the word is, you need to wait. Like, well, maybe a different word, like something else would be great. But maybe God's word is this, wait. Because in the season of waiting, God is crafting you. He's molding you. He's teaching you to listen in these tough seasons. And he's making sure that you won't become a Saul. And the third lesson, as you wait, you will discover not only humility and patience, but thirdly, you will discover where true security lies you'll discover where true security lies. For in that same psalm, the psalm that David was writing, who knows, maybe it was in just a few days after like, you know, Saul launches the spirit and he gets up his like journal and he's like, oh, Lord, deliver me. But in that psalm, he says these words, my shield is God most high who saves the upright in heart. What a perfect picture. What a perfect metaphor for what David was going through as he's thinking about Saul with his spear. He's thinking about God as a shield. Now the question we have, friends, is in what way was God his shield? We read that verse and sometimes it seems so abstract to us. Like, God, you're my shield. Like, what does it mean? Well, it's right here in the text. It's right here in the story. What was David's shield? The answer, God's presence. God's presence 
was David's shield. How do we know that? Because twice in verses 12 through 16, in the text, we're told that God was with David. And again, God was with David. While Saul was trying to be God, David was with God. And that is where God wants us to be, with him, an awareness that he is with us. See, even though God had selected David as the new king, David refused to take the throne by force. In fact, it would be years before it would actually happen, but he waited. And in the midst of that, David had this God awareness. God was with him. That Dave, this caused David to be jealous for God's own name, while Saul was jealous for his own name. See, we are called to live in this way, truly jealous that God gets all the glory. This is the way of Christ. True victory is not found in destroying the competition, but in becoming more like Jesus. For Jesus is our protection. If sinful jealousy comes in the form of a spear, divine jealousy comes in the form of a shield. In the book, Cry of the Soul, the authors put it like this. His jealousy, God's jealousy, is our shield. It is our promise of eternal protection and passionate exclusivity. It is our confidence that the divine lover will win his bride. For David, God was his shield. And church, this comes true for us in Jesus Christ. Think about it. What is a shield? A shield protects us by taking a spear for us. A shield saves you by substitution. A shield stands in your place. So how is Jesus our shield? When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he stood in our place for our sins. He took the penalty for all, that all of our sin deserves. He took the penalty for all the ways in which we are like Saul in us. He went to the cross to win his bride. And when he did, he quite literally took the spear that he might forever be our shield. Because listen, the only fatal wound can come from the spear of sin's guilt. The only spear that we should ever ultimately fear is our own guilt that comes from our own sin. And since the gospel tells us Jesus Christ took this spear for us, it means that even the difficult things he allows into your life, though they are painful, they will never be truly fatal. These other spears will never have the last word in your life. Any one of you who trusts in Jesus Christ, you are called the bride of Christ. And his love for you is your shield. For our king's jealous love does not give us the chores of an unknown slave, but the privileges of a beloved spouse. Church, that is God's love for you. Because God is a righteously jealous God, we know that he passionately pursues us and protects us. In other words, God is not jealous of us as though we had something he needs. No. He is jealous for us because he is all that we need. Do you know that? Do you know that today? See, I said earlier that the question of jealousy is concerned with protection. Our deepest questions are, will I be forsaken? Will I be abandoned? Friends, the gospel says no. We will not be abandoned. Look to the lengths at which God has gone to rescue you. That means you and I can say with Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is our shield, what spear can ultimately destroy us? And we could say of the positions and possessions that God gives or take away, we could say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We can endure through anything in this life because we have God's jealous love as our shield. You will never be truly insecure if you know that Jesus Christ is your shield because it's there that you find security within the protection of his love. And church, I just want to say this loud and clear to you. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for you. He is pursuing you. He will have no rivals. There is to be no other God because those idols will only break your own heart. God is jealous for you. Do you see how that is such a wonderfully glorious truth? It means, you know what it means? That God is not indifferent 
How terrible would that be if God was up in heaven just, eh, whatever. Just those people living their lives. No, he's not. God is not indifferent. God's love for you is not lazy. God's love is passionate. He is passionately pursuing you. He is jealous for you, for your good. And church, that means that we should not be indifferent in our response to him. We should look at his jealous love for us going all the way to the point of a cross and just say, oh my goodness, God, you love me. You love me, you pursue me. And even now you might find yourself in a season of just kind of you know, laziness or being in a state of passivity. And God says, look at my love for you. I am passionately pursuing you. And so church, we should not be indifferent. To his passionate love for us, we should respond in worship. If you truly know today that Jesus Christ is your shield. If you know that, then you are free from throwing spears. You're free from the envy and insecurity that causes you to be sinfully jealous of others because you know that God's jealous love is your divine protection. Church, when you know this, when you know that Christ is your shield, you're free from all that. You're free from throwing spears. You are ultimately protected when they're thrown at you because God will turn even your suffering and your glory. Church, do you see how greatly God loves you? Do you see the lengths to which he's gone for you? How passionately he pursues you? You might have come here today thinking, well, I don't know if he really cares or if he's really noticing. The answer is yes, he does. And if you've forgotten that, my dear church, look to the cross. Look to the cross. God has not forgotten you. He has gone to the greatest lengths ever to rescue and save you. And so we may we rejoice and take up that shield of faith by faith, rejoicing in God's jealous love for us. Amen. Let us not be indifferent in our response. Let us not just say, oh, that's a nice idea. Let's actually enter into worship of our God and let's rejoice in his love for us. Amen. Father, we pray right now that your Holy Spirit would reveal to our own hearts how great your love is for us. And your love is a shield. Lord, you would not have any rival, for there is no other God. Lord, I just believe that your Spirit, even now in this moment, desires to reveal anything that stands between us and you. Lord, there may be some, some barriers. It may be our own sin. It may be our own jealousy. It may be our, our envy. God, whatever it might be, Spirit, would you just reveal that? Knowing that you reveal it, that it might be removed, that we might enjoy renewed intimacy with you. Father, would you shine a light in our hearts? May we be quick to confess if in any way we've been becoming like Saul or if we've responded wrongly when others have come against us. And God, may you shine a light on your glory. May we see how beautiful it is that you are our protector, how beautiful it is that you are our shield. You love us, God. Your love for us is so great. May we rejoice in that and bask in that and may nothing keep us back from coming into your presence even now. And I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not yet know you, that right now, in this moment, that they would put their faith and trust in you. That they would say, Jesus, accept me, not on the basis of what I have done, but on the basis of what you have done for me in Jesus Christ. God, may right now they just pray that and be saved, accept Jesus Christ as their savior and be saved and know you as their shield. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.